right, we're reading from Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the, the, hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the, children of the, save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. He will be like rain fallen on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will until the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him, and all nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from the oppression and the violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from, from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it, may it sway. Let its fruits flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Do you uh, catch the message of that particular psalm? Poetic rapture. With poetic rapture, the, uh, the psalmist tries to point to this good king, tries to picture what a truly good king or hold up an ideal for the perfect king. And, and, and he, he talks about it in ways that, you know, here is a king who cares for his people, a king whose reign not only brings health and, and prosperity and goodness to his own people, but he actually, his reign is a blessing to other nations. And he talks about this king who, who, who crushes oppressors and brings life. And not just a reign that, you know, is good for a few years and then passes away, but a reign that continues. That's what this, this psalmist is pointing to. It's the kind of king that everyone wanted down through history. It's the kind of king that people imagined. It's been imagined in the greatest of stories. It's the kind of king that this psalmist prays for and hopes for and points to. But truly good kings are hard to come by. Right? I mean, look through history and even the best kings fall when measured against this standard of greatness. No ancient king, no king in the Middle Ages, certainly no biblical king, even the greatest kings, David and Solomon, they pale in comparison to this ideal. People longed for good kings, and even when there was a decent king, they were usually disappointed. And when the kings were evil, everyone suffered. This is true down through the ages. And we don't live in monarchies now, I get that. But we, we can still imagine what that was like. We, we still know that 
how the leadership goes affects the country, the people. When Jesus burst on the scene, a whole new king had finally come. All that the poets and the prophets and the people had ever hoped for came true in Jesus. He was so different from every other king that had ever lived, whether they were good or bad or downright nasty. He was so different, though, that they often didn't even recognize him for who he was. We've been exploring the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, we've been, you know, I know we did some in the fall. We, we now have done some here in, in winter, and we're going to wrap up uh, this part of Mark here next week and into something different I already talked about, and we're going to pick it up again in the fall. We're taking our time as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But we've been walking through it together, and as we've been going through this, we've been seeing how Mark is trying to point out that Jesus is the king that outstrips all other kings. A king that actually cares for his people. A king who uses his power to bring freedom. Not to lay heavy burdens. To bring life to people, not to crush them. And, and not only that, but this king eventually, this is where the story's pointing, eventually will lay down his own life to ensure the future of his people. This is the picture that Mark has been painting for us. And today, in the, in the stories we're looking at today, Mark wants to underscore just how different this kingdom of God, this kingdom of Jesus, really is. And he does that by placing side by side two real kingdoms and then inviting us through these stories to follow the one true king, Jesus. The setting Mark uses is fascinating. He uses the setting of two kingdom banquets. And each of these banquets illustrate the quality of the king. The type of kingdom they're leading. Mark starts out with the ugly story first. The, the most common story. The story we've heard again and again. And countless thousands of people through history have suffered under. The story of a king who's just like so many other kings. Who uses his power to prop up his petty indulgences and crushes anyone who opposes him. Mark tells us the story of King Herod a little snippet of his story at least. And he's holding up the evil kingdom of King Herod into the light of the good kingdom of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, we're in chapter 6 in Mark. And there's some guest Bibles in the pews in front of you if you'd like to look. Um, but I'll be reading through the story and making some comments as we go. So remember, as we read Mark's story, right from, right from verse 1, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, he's always pushing us, his, his readers, the people who are receiving this story, he's always pushing us to ask the question, who is this Jesus? And the second question, kind of like it, can we trust him? Who is this Jesus, and can we trust him? And today, as we join back into the story, it's actually the question, the who question, that people are asking right within Mark itself. So listen to this. Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Remember what had happened just recently? Uh, Jesus, he, of course, he's been traveling around. He's been healing people. He's been driving out, de out demons. He's been announcing that the kingdom of God has come. And then, just recently, he multiplied his efforts by sending his own disciples out two by two, right? So all over the region, people are being healed. People that have been sick for a long time. People have been in a, a crippling situation have been healed. People that have been demon-oppressed or possessed have, have, have found freedom. I mean, this is wild stuff. And while they're doing this, what are they saying? The kingdom of God has come. 
You know, when, when somebody else starts announcing that there's a kingdom and you're the king, you get a little uncomfortable, right? So news comes down the pipe, eventually gets up the pipe, I should say, to Herod himself. Hearing what they've been hearing and seeing what they've been seeing, there's a, a range of theories about him. Listen to this. Some were saying, some of the people, some of the people who are hearing these rumors, uh, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. But when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded has come back from the dead. Everyone's hearing about this Jesus and trying to place this Jesus character within the framework of their own story. You know, he's a fulfillment of prophecy. He's Elijah. He's a prophet of God. Or because everyone believed, even right up to Herod, everyone believed that this this John guy was a prophet of God. There were assumptions being made that maybe it was John back from the dead. That maybe a resurrection has happened. and, And that's why he's got all this power now. That's the theory that Herod's guilty conscience grabs a hold of. He assumes that old JB's come back to haunt him. And I thought, you know, when you're a megalomaniac, you really, it is really all about you, so you kind of make that assumption, right? Well, that's Herod's assumption. John the Baptist has come back from the dead. If you've been tracking with the story of Mark so far, this is actually new information about John. We heard about John being thrown, back in, thrown in prison back in chapter 1. In fact, John being tossed into prison became the launching of the ministry of Jesus. We read it in Mark, in Mark 1.14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. But we didn't know what had become of him. Well, here's the rest of the story. And, and listen to this, and as you do, consider how Mark is contrasting the kingdom of this Herod with this kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming. Here's the story from the Bible. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother's, Herod's brother's, Philip's wife. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. Maybe he liked her name. I'm thinking. Her name's Herodias. Okay, it gets worse in a minute. Just, uh, okay. Um, John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. Why? Because Philip was actually still alive. He wasn't dead. All right? So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John. And knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him in the prison. Anyway, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. You get a picture here of this guy? He knows uh, John is a, a good and holy man. He respects him, and yet in order to please his wife, he tosses him in the can. He's disturbed and intrigued by what John is saying. He finds John fascinating and frustrating sort of at the same time. He's a weak-willed, wishy-washy, self-serving king. And other historians bore this out. He eventually went to exile because of his character. But as far as Herodias is concerned, jail is too good for this John, right? So she bides her time. Back to the Bible. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. This is the, this is the who's who, the power elite, the up-and-ups of, of their whole district. 
Then his daughter, his stepdaughter, also named Herodias. I love this. This family just keeps it simple. She just, just, just what are we going to call her? Hey, let's go with Herodias. So a Herod theme. So stepdaughter, very likely, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Now let's get this straight. This is not a cute little girl in a tiara and a tutu. This is a provocative, sensual dance designed to excite and entice the guests. This is dirty dancing rated mature. That's what's going on here. And as the guests would have all been men, we understand why they were greatly pleased. In their setting, there weren't, women and men didn't have these parties together. It would have been all men at the table. Herod is so aroused by her, and so drunk, I might add, that he makes this ridiculous promise. Ask me anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom. Now, he is really overreaching himself here. Because he's thinking he's bigger than he actually is. In fact, he's a puppet for Rome. And, and what the, the history shows that even the way Mark is calling him king is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Because see, Herod desperately wanted somebody to call him the king. But Rome wouldn't do it. And no one else seemed to, but maybe his, his close elite, maybe the buddies at the party would call him King Herod. But no one really believed he was the king. He was just the puppet. And so here he gives away half of a kingdom he doesn't really have. But fortunately, the girl isn't that interested in ruling a kingdom. In fact, she doesn't even know what to ask for. So she went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Can you see Herodias? Can you hear the cackling laughter? The hands clapped in glee. Finally, her time has come. She'll get him this time. She says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist. And then, just to show that she's as awful as her mom, she adds to the detail. I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a platter. As though she wants to then serve it up amidst the desserts at the feast. The king has deeply regretted what he had said. Oops. But because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body, and they buried it in a tomb. And there you have it. One king at a banquet demonstrating the character of his kingdom, culminating in the gruesome desert of a beheaded prophet. And, and Mark wants us to feel the weight of this story, to see how this kingdom of Herod is and how it works and where it leads. He wants to reveal how this kingdom is set against the purposes and the people of God, drunk with blood and blind with folly. And in doing so, he points us toward the death of Jesus at the hands of of Rome. He alludes to the death of Jesus in a number of ways through the story that we don't have time to get into, but he alludes to it, points toward the death of Jesus, who will die just like John in that sense, not beheaded, but crucified at the hands of Rome. But he also does something else. He reminds the Roman Christian readers, because people who are receiving this Gospel of Mark were people in Rome, Christians in Rome, who were suffering persecution under Roman kings, Roman emperors, 
the Roman powers. And he reminds them that when they suffer persecution, they stand with John the Baptist and ultimately with their Lord King Jesus, who also suffered at the hands of the Roman powers. They hear that in this story. Mark tells us this story in order to elevate the one true King Jesus because what he does next is fascinating. He follows this kingdom banquet with the story of another kingdom banquet, a banquet where Jesus is the host. And Mark deliberately puts these stories side by side so that we can see the contrast, so that we can see Jesus, how good he is, and his desire for us. And so after this gruesome retrospective that kind of recalls what had happened to John the Baptist, we catch up with Jesus on the other side of the lake. Jesus had been trying to find a quiet place for his disciples. Remember, uh, they had been out on this mission, and he, he calls and said, let's, let's go find a quiet place, but good luck. They can't do it. People chase after them. They literally run around the lake, and they meet Jesus when he and his boys dock. They're so eager. How does Jesus respond to them? He's tired. He knows his disciples are tired. He's really been trying to get away from these people. Well, he responds just like a good king responds. This is what he says in Mark 6:34. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. This little reference to sheep without a shepherd comes straight out of the Old Testament. Um, it's picturing the people who have no leader, who have no one caring for them, no one protecting them, no one guiding them, no one serving them. In fact, it might be a people who are suffering under leadership, who should have been taking care of them. And we know that that's exactly what's happening here. On the one hand, they have the tyrannical political leadership that's been beautifully pictured in Herod. But then on the other hand, they have a poisonous religious leadership that's written them off as godless and hopeless, and they just get out of the way. God could do what he wants to do. These people truly had no shepherd, no leader, and now that they've found one in Jesus, well, they were, they were eager for more. They wanted to be led by him. So Jesus opened himself up to them, and he began to teach them many things about his kingdom, about his purposes for them. And this went on all day. But late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus is going to teach his disciples how to become true leaders, leaders in his kingdom, leaders who care and provide for people with the power and the provision of God. So Jesus said, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Well, how much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus then told his disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. And then this is where Jesus hosts his kingdom banquet. Jesus presides over this meal using the same words we're going to read that are used at the end of the story for communion, for the Last Supper, taken, blessed, broken, and given, inviting us to come to him, inviting these people to come to him for a true banquet meal. And every Christian reading this, especially in Rome, would have seen in this communion, in this offering of bread and fish, would have seen the holy communion meal pointing ultimately toward the death of Jesus himself on behalf of his people. Listen to these words. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up toward heaven and blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. 
They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed from those loaves. You can go to the next picture, Maddie. Over here. Jesus, the one true king, hosts a kingdom banquet. But this kingdom banquet, banquet truly satisfied. Jesus uses his power to meet people's needs and he's sharing his kingdom of compassion freely and openly, inviting all to enjoy his provision. Do you see how these two banquet stories captured, I think, in the silver platter and the woven basket? Do you see how these two kingdom stories stand side by side to offer a contrast for the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Herod? In Herod's story, we see a king sacrifice a prophet in order to save face, which really exposes how wicked he really is. But in the Jesus story, we see a king who cares for his people, who invites people into his kingdom fully, and through that points them toward his coming sacrifice for them, as both their, as their, as their prophet, yes, as their king as well. And you could add priest to that. Because of his compassion for his people, Jesus is the one who will lose face. And we can never forget this. It is Jesus who will suffer the humiliation of crucifixion in front of a watching world, suffering at the hands of Rome, and in doing so, offering his kingdom to everyone who will come. King Herod uses his power to abuse, but King Jesus uses his power to serve. See the contrast? King Herod is motivated by greed and entitlement. King Jesus is motivated by compassion and need. King Herod's banquet climaxes with the death of a righteous man. King Jesus' banquet gives life to others while at the same time pointing toward the climax of the biggest story of history where the king himself dies as the sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous. What a contrast. The silver platter, the woven basket, the the Herod party or the Jesus feast, the kingdom of this world the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. Every day, you and I live in a world where we're told that the silver platter is what we should be pursuing. We're told that the silver platter is the purpose of our lives. We're told that we're to set everything up to pursue this. We're told that this is what we should be aiming for, that we should be grabbing power and position wherever we can. Every day, you and I are told that the very meaning of our lives is to get somehow invited to this party. Daily, we're sold the line that the good life, the the real fun, the life worth having is to be found on the silver platter and that we need to do everything we can, anything we can, to save face, to look good, to have what we want. And we may not put it exactly that way, I mean, you and I are probably, you know, not looking at this story of Herod with a, you know, guy's head on a plate as a party we want to be at. I get that. But somehow, in, in subtle ways, but in real ways, every day, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of our culture, the kingdoms of, of expectations try to lure us, try to tempt us, try to call us. They pull and they tug at our hearts. We're told that our self-worth, our respectability, our place in the world hangs on our financial position or it hangs on our marital status or it hangs on our ability to produce or our intelligence or our social smarts. In in short, we're told that we're really only worth something when we're around this table. Right? That's what we're told. 
And so we feel that tug, that temptation, that pressure to somehow arrange our lives and arrange our work and arrange our careers, arrange our, even our recreational activities and our spending and our hearts, really, around some kingdom other than the kingdom of Jesus. We're told that true life is found in the kingdom of the Herods or the Hollywoods, the beautiful, the hip, the cool, the in. But this story puts the truth to that lie, showing us where ultimately that banquet leads to a bloody, uncaring rejection of all that's good and holy and right, of all that is truly human, of all that is Jesus in the world. But the kingdom of Jesus, it runs the other way. The kingdom of Jesus is found in the -the out-of-the-way places, uh, far away from the palaces of power. We find Jesus out in the wilderness, and he's swamped by needy, desperate, broken, leaderless people. That's the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. It's the kingdom where power gives life rather than takes it. A kingdom where loving people is more important than saving face. A kingdom where a king has compassion on his people rather than just feasting in opulence while everyone else goes hungry. So the question for us, I think, is which kingdom pulls at our hearts? Which king are you hoping to hang out with? I was really struck by this as I, as I wrestled with how these two stories offer a contrast and what that challenge is for us. I was really struck by the fact that both kings offer a place at their kingdom. Both kings offer a seat at their table. And this really struck me. Both Banquets lead to death. But only one banquet truly satisfies. Only one banquet brings life. And only one offers resurrection. Two stories, two banquets, two kings. Silver platter or a woven basket. A road that leads to a palace or a road that leads into the desert. Well, what are the implications for us? What do we do with this? I really wrestled with that this week. I knew somehow that God wanted us to, 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 to see how these two stories fit together. And it was hard. It was hard. I, I admit that. How do these two stories go together? How do they relate to our lives? I mean, seriously, what does Herod have to do with you or me? Very little. What do kings have to do with you or me? Very little, right? How do we feel the, the challenge of this? Well, Let me tease out a few implications that I think challenge me personally and I I, I think maybe we'll have a challenge for you. First of all, being part of this Jesus movement, this Jesus kingdom, brings us into direct conflict with the kingdoms of Herod, whatever that Herod is, whether it's cultural expectations or cultural norms or the, 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 the kingdoms of this world, as it were, that try to say it's all about amassing wealth or it's all about looking good or it's all about your own private party, whatever it is. Being part of this Jesus kingdom brings us into direct conflict with that. You know, kings like Herod tell us by example or explicitly that saving face is what matters the most. That you need to do whatever, whatever you have to do to, to, to hold up your own self, to, to make it better for you. But being part of the kingdom of Jesus, we hear Jesus tell us that we need to lay down our lives in humble service for each other. It's like the total opposite. And I'd like to, to say that when we do that, when we actually live our lives in humble service for each other, it will bring us into direct conflict. In fact, because we do that, there will be times where we ourselves will be crushed. We ourselves will pay the price. Think about it. We're in a world that often um, reveres and rewards powerful, the crushers. 
And when we come alongside people who are broken, and we come alongside them and we offer them life in, in, a, in, a, in a humble way, guess what? We'll get stepped on too. And I think that's the picture that's happening here. You look at a John the Baptist who served faithfully. Jesus, who was obedient to his father, both suffered because they were part of a different kingdom. And this kingdom of Jesus that he's inviting each one of us to into and to follow, to embrace, to live out, is a kingdom that brings us in direct conflict with the power kingdoms, the kingdoms of culture. We've got to be ready for that. Probably moves us on to our next implication, which is that I think when I read these stories and I, I see the contrast, I realize that we need to evaluate which kingdom fills our daily view. You know, which, which kingdom do I focus on? What, what kingdom fills my heart? And there seems to be an exclusivity here. You know, you can only be at one banquet or the other, not both. It's like they're taking place simultaneously, but one's up in the capital, in the palace, and one's out in the middle of nowhere on a grassy hillside somewhere, right? And you can't get to both. There's miles between. But the reality is, many of us, we try to do both. We try to reserve a seat at both banquets. We try to somehow please both. We try to make sure we're there to tinkle the glass with the power brokers, but also out in the wilderness getting bread from Jesus. And I think this, this story says you can't. It's impossible. You can't be part of both of these meals. And so it begs the question, what am I filling my week with? Do I fill my week with the pursuit of a kingdom that serves my version of the good life? Or that serves a larger cultural version of what, what, uh, what it all should look like, what it all should be like? Or am I willing to follow Jesus into his version of the good life? You know, do I, do I let my life somehow be captured by this cultural ideal of the smart woman or the competent man or the got-it-all-together individual or the perfect family or whatever it is? And then, and then do I try to come maybe on Sunday, maybe through the week, I, I try to somehow jam in a little bit of humble service to Jesus in the midst of that all? I think it's impossible. And I think that's what these stories are saying. And it's a wonder why we struggle when we're trying to take part in both banquets. And it leads us to, I think, the last implication, which is that we actually need to decide. And this contrast holds it up very clearly. We need to decide which king is actually good. Which king can we trust? Will it be a king like Herod, who tells us how to be successful in life, how to position ourselves, how to get what you want in life? Or will it be King Jesus, who invites us to follow him in his own humble, sacrificial way of living and serving others? There really are two banquets, but there's only one true king. And when it all comes down to it, we have to answer the question, what banquet are we going to be at? Which banquet is going to sustain our life? Which banquet leads, perhaps to death and suffering, but through that, to resurrection? Jesus is inviting us, each one of us, to eat at his banqueting table, to join him in his meal. He does that by inviting us into friendship with him, to trust our lives to him, to let him lead us as the one true good king. And his invitation does lead us directly to the communion table, as he did with this meal out in the wilderness, where we eat the bread that's been taken, blessed, broken, and given for us. Just as Jesus was taken by wicked religious and political leaders, blessed by his Father, broken upon the cross, and given in death for our sakes. The king dying for his people, the good king, 
offering himself for the world so that we could live. The banquet that we get served from the woven basket isn't a flashy banquet. It's a simple meal. It's not opulent. It's plain. And yet, it's from the woven basket that comes the eternal food that nourishes our souls. The woven basket stands in judgment over the silver platter, calling into judgment all the kingdoms of this world, calling all of us to repent from the ways that we try to build our own kingdoms, that we try to pursue a kingdom agenda that runs completely counter to the agenda of Jesus. Our own attempts to save face, perhaps even sacrifice others to make our own way in the world and invites us to come instead to bow before the truly good King, Jesus, who has offered himself for us, offered himself to us, and invited us into eternal life with him. So communion is his banquet meal. It's something that we participate in regularly as followers of Jesus. We say, we believe you're the one true King, and though we acknowledge that through the weeks we get a tug, we get a pull, that there's other kingdoms that are vying for our attendance, that there's other kingdoms out there that are trying to feed, it, feed us their stuff, that this is the meal that truly sustains us, and this is the king that we're following. And that's what we do as we participate in communion. We say, Jesus, you are the true king. We choose your banquet. We want to be at your table. We want to feast with you and your people. And so our invitation today is to come with empty hands and find a compassionate king like the one pictured in Psalm 72, a compassionate king who's willing to give us what we truly need and we want what we most deeply desire, not simply what you think you need or everyone tells you you need or what commercials tell you you should desire. We come to the king who knows us intimately. He knows exactly who we are and what we need and he offers himself to us. But when we come to the party on that grassy hillside, we begin to realize that we're not, we're not necessarily sitting beside the latest influencer in Galilee or Creston or Canada. In fact, we, found ourse- we find ourselves surrounded by people of all kinds. Some of them not so influential. Some of them not so appealing even. And we find that the fare is not sumptuous and the style is not grand, that instead of platters were so- served from woven baskets and instead of satin pillows were sitting on a rock But it's at that meal, it's at that banquet that we meet the king of all our desires who gave himself up for us and who provides us with what is truly the richest affair, meeting our deepest longings, satisfying our hunger and our thirst for his word with his food. We come to communion today and we're going to serve communion a little differently today because it wouldn't be right to talk about a kingdom banquet, banquet and a kingdom feast and then just give you a tiny little bit. So we want to give you a little more today to, to chew on, both figuratively and literally. So what we're going to do today is we're going we're to have a little bit of a feast together. We're going to enjoy the kingdom banquet together and you're going to stay in your seats today. You don't need to file forward. And, and you're going to be served in your seats a portion that's a little greater than normal. Maybe not on all-out feast, but a little, little more substance than normal. And as we eat and drink today, know that you are participating in the banquet of the only true good king, whose kingdom will last forever, 
the king who knows you and loves you and longs for you to experience all of his goodness in your life, knows exactly where you're at, knows exactly what you're struggling with, knows exactly what you need. And as we eat and drink today, receive it as from the hand of Jesus, that he loves you, that he knows you, that he is present here today offering himself to you. So, those who are going to serve communion are going to get that together and begin to come to the front. And as they do that, I want you to hear, because I, 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 I made a point of, of saying that the words Jesus used when he took the bread and he, and he blessed it and he, and he broke it and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it, that he was using the same language. And so I want to read for today as, as we move toward communion the words that Mark uses during the Last Supper. When they were, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus headed toward crucifixion. Today, you get to eat from the woven basket. There's actually been food in here the entire time waiting for you. And so, George and Terry and Brooke and Val are going to serve you. And what I want to invite you to do, our worship team is going to come and lead us. You guys can grab some food and drink on your way. Um, What I want to invite you to do is as we sing again, He is Lord. Let this meal, let our song be a declaration that this is the kingdom banquet that we want to be part of. That Jesus, you're the king we want to follow. And I invite you, as you take a piece of pita bread and a glass of juice, just, just to start into it. Go ahead. You don't need to wait. Just start into it. Chew it thoughtfully. Chew it prayerfully. Chew it gratefully. Because the King Jesus, he's here. And this is his banquet. And we may not be much. <laughs> we may not be the cool or the hip. Uh, but we're in on the greatest thing that's ever happened in history. The story of Jesus. The kingdom of God. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll begin participating. Jesus, you have invited us to your banquet. You offered your life on our behalf and then invited us as followers of you that when we would gather, we would remember your death and proclaim it until you come again. And so today as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we do exactly that. We proclaim your death until you come. We we proclaim it to each other. We proclaim it to the world. And we ask that this kingdom meal would sustain and nourish us in such a way that through the week, when we feel the tug of our hearts and the pull of our minds toward kingdoms that are other than yours, that this meal, that your presence would sustain us so that at those different times we can name it for what it is and say, I know the end of that story and it ain't good. Jesus, help me to follow you. So Jesus, today, thank you for your banquet as we eat and drink in your presence, acknowledging you as our Lord and following you.
In your name we pray. Amen.